You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, today we're going to uh, go to some of the um, highlights of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. I know there's a flow over from a film program I do, but... Uh, this is because uh, they are covering issues that uh, in a filmic form, which uh, is important for you to be aware of. We're going to, uh, I had a chat with uh, Kim Stanton, who has made a film called The Trust Fall uh, Assange. Uh, it's uh, If you don't know all the details of the Ass- Julian Assange story, this is a perfect opportunity for you to go to the Nova on uh, Sunday. There's two screenings um, and... Uh, uh, Kim gives us a lowdown on the uh, nature of the film. It's important to uh, keep it in your mind. We're going to talk to Angus MacDonald uh, about his film Freedom is Beautiful. It's the extraordinary journey of Kurdish refugees Fahad Bandesh and Mustafa Asmitahba. A fantastic film uh, on a whole lot of levels, but um, for people who have been uh, going regularly to the... Uh, refugee rallies, they will be aware of um, Fahad and Moz. Um, and this is a tribute to them, the people who have been fighting for them, but also these two remarkable men. Uh, freedom is beautiful. It is also going to be on today at uh, the Nova, but because it was a sold-out uh, screening, uh, it's also going to be played again on Sunday. So you could get yourself a ticket by going online. Um, we uh, got This Is The Week That Was, and then Don Sutherland is uh, returning. We're going to have a, a chat about um, To The Cud over a whole range of very interesting issues that are going on at this moment in the Australian political scene. But before we do... Uh, a couple of interesting things. Um, I, last week we got a, a press release that uh, told us how many luxury cars have been sold in 2023 to 20, 2022 to 2023. <clears throat> Uh, an indicator, a, a bald fact. This comes out of the RMIT fact-checking lab and they recorded the number of luxury car sales, 2022 to 23, as I said. Um, and what they've discovered is that uh, in the year to May, 117,411 luxury cars were sold 
including 193 Lamborghinis. Now, that's a bold um, number, but then I decided, let's find out how much a Lamborghini costs. A Lamborghini Aventador's price and, uh, in uh, Australia uh, goes from 789809 to $825,914. That's just an extraordinary amount of money. And that's just an extraordinary amount of cars that are being sold to all those impoverished big end of town Australians, it would appear, uh, who are bleating about uh, the issue of paying people the same amount for the same work. Uh, a reminder that there's a, a snap rally, uh, an anti-fascist rally today over in Sunshine. It's uh, uh, collecting at 2pm Sunshine West IGA car park. Uh, the campaign against racism, fascism, CAF, uh, are doing this snap rally to protest the far right in Sunshine. This anti-fascist county rally has been called in resistance against the National Socialist Network organising a, in inverted commas, white power lifting meet at Sunshine Legacy Boxing Gym. So uh, this is your opportunity to stand up. It was interesting that in Geelong uh, recently, and this was recorded by Green Left Weekly, that... uh, uh, in Geelong, July the 25th, there was a no room for racism uh, mobilisation in response to a provocative media coverage of a small Melbourne-based Nazi group which had posed in front of the town hall and the local office of the CFMEU. And uh, and uh, they, this is a quite shocking socialist, Sarah Hathaway elected to the City Council of Greater Geelong Council, Norland Community, pushes back against racism, p- provocation, and uh, the, the Geelong Council under pressure not to cut jobs, blah, blah, blah. There's a whole range of things going on in Geelong. But um, the, uh, a, a whole range of uh, groups of people, including the MUA, the CFMEU and other unions and Geelong Trades Hall, the Combined Refugee Action Group, Socialist Alliance and various churches attended a number of councillors as well uh, to this rally outside the town hall to uh, push back from um, no Nazis in their town. Thanks very much. Just a reminder that also there is the anti-nuclear rally on the uh, 6th of August. Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. I uh, caught up with Kim Stanton, the uh, film director of a new film called The Fall, 
uh, Assange, the trustful Assange, despite being detained, silenced and hidden from public view in Mexican's security Belmarsh prison, multi-award winning Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange has become one of the loudest voices for free speech of our time. I had a, a word with uh, uh, Kim about why it was important for people to be continually aware of uh, the issue of Julian Assange. So the film, um, The Trustful Assange, first, um, it it took a number of years to put together. It's quite a a comprehensive uh, background to what's happened to Julian Assange. Can you tell us about uh, this journey you've taken to make this film? Sure. Well, the aim of the film from the outset was to raise awareness of uh, Julian Assange's predicament, his situation and the case and gather more support. So I wasn't interested to make a kind of a typical sort of doco from a, a neutral perspective, which is the common way, um, because I didn't feel that uh, in this sort of situation with the, the treatment that Julian has endured, uh, I didn't feel it was appropriate to give voice to his enemies, so to speak, his, to the other side. So it is very much a, a, a campaign film aimed at uh, building a support for Julian to add weight to the campaign uh, because I feel that rather than being prosecuted, as, as the narrative tries to present, I feel that he's been persecuted and there's a difference. So we set out to make a film that would uh, help people understand the, the wider issues as well as a lot of detail about how he has been persecuted and uh, dismantle a lot of these false narratives, debunk the smears. I've been following this case from its beginnings and I know the key elements that you're telling, but what's so important about your film is that for anybody who knows only some of it, uh, you lay it right out there for them to see all the gory details. And uh, Niels Melser's evidence, for example, is absolutely fascinating. He is a man intelligent, aware, uh, and as your film points out, he himself discovers what a hatchet job has been done on Julian Assange. Yeah, that's right. Niels Niles was a UN special rapporteur on torture during at the time that the film was being made. is a really good example of, well, for starters, as, as you say, someone that has gone from having a prejudice, uh, as, as Niels says, he, he believes that he... He already knew everything he needs to know. Um, and then the, the deeper he delved into it, the more dirt came out and it wasn't on the side of Assange, it was on the side of the government. Uh, that's that's the, his quote from the film. Yeah, the most important thing about what Niels Melzer's work has done is that he went to the prison with two other, two doctors and they did an ass- assessment of Julian's mental state under the Istanbul Protocol, I think it's called, their conclusion was that he is a victim of psychological torture. So that's really a crucial thing for everyone to be aware of. And when he presented that finding to the to the governments involved, UK government, Australia government, US government, 
uh, they just ignored it. And this is the, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, who is a, an expert in torture. It's just one example of the terrible treatment that Julian has endured. Also, people like Jennifer Robinson pointing out how the law has been used or misused in a way to imprison Julian Assange, a bit like refugees here being put in jail for something that is not criminal. In fact, he's been put in jail for doing what a journalist does. Yeah, from a journalistic perspective, all journalists should be supporting Julian and uh, be very vocal about this situation because their profession is, is being undermined. Their ability to do proper good journalism. What Julian Assange did was kind of reinvent journalism to a degree. He's taken it to another level of accuracy. WikiLeaks, the website and the encryption and the, the anonymous Dropbox was really a technological development and innovation for journalism, allowing this uh, flow of information from whistleblowers to the publishers and, and to the journalists who would go and uh, do the normal journalistic work of checking for you know authenticity and redacting names. And then uh, WikiLeaks then pass it on to their many, many um, partners, including the New York Times, to Spiegel and Le Monde and The Guardian and uh, all of these huge media outlets then ran the stories based on this uh, incredible information that had been uncovered. Um, so it's one of the smears against Julian that is constantly regurgitated is that he is not a journalist somehow. But what on earth is he if he's not a journalist? He's actually won more than two dozen journalistic awards, including the Walkley Award for journalism. There's not many people that say that he's not a journalist. And the ones that do, I, I do wonder if they're just fellow journalists that are a bit jealous of, of his success and his uh, incredible innovation and uh, brilliance to take journalism to another level. And, and this is what journalism needs to be, is to be more accurate, more important, uh, more relevant to the, uh, the world population. Your film is quite remarkable, actually, because you speak to a lot of people. Not only are you following the actual practical step-by-step -step story, and uh, I must say, uh, the warning at the beginning where you actually tell people that there are fairly awful things that you're going to be seeing in this film are true because you play the collateral murder video all the way through and it is absolutely, it's very difficult to even describe how terrible that video really is. But you uh, go and you speak to a whole lot of uh, people like Chris Hedges and Tarek Ali and Daniel Ellsberg and John Pilger, who actually give a reason quite besides Julian Assange, uh, his sanity and freedom as a reason for why people should be concerned. But people should be very scared for themselves, shouldn't they? This is what your film tells us. The collateral murder video um, is extremely significant. It's been described as, um, I think it was by Dean Yates in a, in a speech that I heard recently. He was describing it as uh, the most important video uh, ever released about war. And, uh, and it is yeah, it's an extremely shocking video and... Uh, unfortunately, because of the 
the dominance of the mainstream media and their reluctance to um, to show that particular war crime um, on on television, then it's still only a very small percentage of people that have seen that video, and uh, and it's it's really the basis. It's one of the main parts of the indictment um, against Julian. They avoid it uh, because they they don't want to embarrass themselves. But the video is what ultimately it's it's the the main thing that really embarrassed the U.S. government was the fact that they covered up that incident. That's what uh, really is the main motivation for them to go after Julian and to try to get rid of WikiLeaks. Well, uh, uh, yeah, this is the argument that you promulgate, and it's probably the truth that uh, by um, making him a uh, an example, nobody else will put their head above the parapets. Yeah, well, that is what is the main um, sort of plot. Uh, the whole point of the pursuing Julian and having him detained in Belmarsh Prison for four and a half years now, and all of the way that they've used lawfare to, you know, make the whole offensive for Assange and for WikiLeaks. All of these methods that they've used is designed to scare off other future would-be whistleblowers and journalists from uh, doing these this same type of journalism, uh, exposing the dirty laundry of the powers. It is very much about scapegoating, making an example of somebody so that the whole world, especially journalists, investigative journalists who would potentially cover these kinds of stories, are too scared to cover them. The... Um attack on democracy, the attack on the rule of law is actually what is going on here. I mean, it's about freedom of speech, but it's also about the very foundations of Western democracy that's under the spotlight, really, isn't it? Well, free speech is is meant to be one of the pillars of the democracy. Free speech has been developing for 5,000 years and we would like to think that, uh, especially in the Western world, that that rights are improving, that free speech is being protected. Free speech is regularly mentioned by um, by presidents and prime ministers in Western countries. They love to um, purport to be supporters of free speech, but what we, with the reality of what what is really going on uh, in in the last decade or so, is that we're seeing a de-evolution, an undermining of uh, democracy and free speech in Western countries. And this is something we highlight in the film as a chapter about the decline of press freedom. And we have um, some stats about about how currently there's over 500 journalists uh, in prison, detained or actually with a prison sentence in the world globally for their work. And when I heard that figure, I was shocked. It's 500 journalists are actually sitting in a cell just for doing journalism work. And what, what is journalism? It is, it is just truth-telling. It's just uh, sharing a message. It's sharing information. So there shouldn't be any journalists in prison. And, and you know, most people would think, well, oh, that's, that must be in places like China and Russia and all these uh, sort of dictatorships. Um, yes, and look, largely it is. But then you have Julian Assange, uh, a, a multi-award-winning journalist who's won more journalism awards than 
um, almost any other, I mean, uh, most journalists, uh, that's for sure. And here he is in, in a prison in London, in a Western country that purports to be democratic. So it's, it's basically the, the, the situation of Julian Assange, the treatment of him is the canary in the coal mine of the state of our democracy. Um, and it's, it should be very concerning to everybody. So what, what people really need to do is take some time and look into this issue, look into the case, find out the real story. Don't be uh, sort of sabotaged or um, misdirected by all the false narratives around it. Um, find out what this is really about, which is about the information and the leaks. That's what they're trying to do is a, is a kind of a magic trick to mi misdirect the, the attention of the public onto all these criticisms of Julian instead of to what is in the leaks, what was revealed. And if people can do that, take some time to look into it and also to learn a little bit about what WikiLeaks exposed, well, then we're going to find that there is a crisis of democracy and we have a lot to do and we, we need to be aware of the decline that's going on and each do some small thing about it. This documentary, which is having its world premiere at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on uh, Sunday, the 30th, uh, is aims to increase political pressure for the release of Julian Assange. Yeah, that's right. Um, what my aim is, uh, as I said, is to, to increase awareness to inform people, to inspire them to action. And ultimately, because this is, this is not about the law, this is not a legal case, the law is just a subterfuge. It's a, 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 a tool used against, uh, against Julian Assange to, um, just to keep him detained. I mean, imagine, I mean, you, you know, uh, even the the, the uh, original um, excuse for taking him into prison was that he jumped bail. The, the normal uh, sentence for that is, would be 50 weeks. But here we are, um, more than four years being detained indefinitely. He has no idea when he'll be out. It's just obscene. Everyone should be doing something about it. It starts with awareness, you know, people just taking some time to look into it. Uh, the film is designed to educate and build awareness. And what we would like to see is that Julian Assange becomes one of the election issues in the next uh, Australian elections and, and, and in the US. It needs to become one of the, the points that future prime ministers and presidents um, would be highlighting and uh, we are seeing in the US there's a number of the presidential candidates that are in the running have stated that on day one they would release Julian Assange or if they were elected they would release many, many whistleblowers. We're still hopeful that Joe Biden will just do the right thing and decide to not continue this Trump era persecution and just have Julian's freedom arranged. And we'd also also hopeful that Anthony Albanese will, instead of using this sort of cryptic, um, sort of vague rhetoric of enough is enough and brought to a close, uh, just be gutsy enough to stand up for democracy and free speech and a fellow Aussie and, and just demand Julian's freedom. That's, that's what they should be doing. Um, 
because he, he shouldn't have spent one day in prison. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was a chat I had with filmmaker uh, around his film The Trust for Julian Assange. Uh, it's uh, going to be shown tomorrow at, uh, oh no, Sunday on the Nova, um, uh, the um, Kim Stanton's film. It's going to have two screenings. It's going to be on Sunday. It's going to be uh, on at 6.30pm and at 9.20pm. So you get a, a chance to see this film, which documents, uh, has got a whole lot of new material as well as uh, a very strong message around uh, what can be done and what people can do as uh, it gets closer and closer to this uh, shameful extradition. Uh, to uh, now, if you're interested, Truth Not War presents Whistleblowers and WikiLeaks Collide, and that's today, 3 to 6 p.m., Loading Bay Trades Hall Council. There's going to be a variety of speakers, um, some of them I've heard before and uh, find them uh, very compelling. There's Dean Yates with special guests John Shipton, as in father of Julian Lesage, and David McBride, war crimes whistleblower, for an afternoon of talks, followed by a Q&A. Uh, there's, it's a uh, fundraiser, raffle tickets, T-shirts and other m- merchandise for sale. Donations encouraged. We're going to play Roger Waters because, of course, he's been um, a very long-term supporter of this campaign. And it's also the end of broadcasting for Thursday, the end of broadcasting for 
Hiroshima Day Rally for Peace and Against Nuclear Submarines, AUKUS and War. Nationwide commemorations and events will be held on the 78th anniversary of the US dropping nuclear bombs on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Join millions of people across the world in sending a powerful message, never again. On Sunday 6th of August at 1pm at the State Library of Victoria. For more information, you can visit the Facebook page No AUKUS Coalition Vic a 3CR supporter. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And before we move on, I have to do a cheerio to Jason. He's a long-term listener to the show. And uh, if I don't get it out there, I'll forget. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in the studio, we've got a live guest. Uh, we've got the filmmaker Angus MacDonald. G'day, Angus. How are you? G'day, Annie. Lovely to be here. I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, yep. yeah. Freedom is beautiful. What mm-hmm. a film. Great film. How did you get into making this film? Because it's not a, a usual film, is it? Uh no, I don't think it is, especially for me. I've never made a... It's my first feature film. never made a feature film before, but um, I guess I've been engaged... I've been a, a painter for 25 years, but I've been engaged in the refugee issue probably for the last five or six years, making content, and uh, I've met a lot of people who have been working in this space for a long time, and through a mutual friend called Craig Foster, I met Moz and Firehead, the two subjects of the film. Moz, uh, this was a couple of years ago, when Moz was still uh, at the Park Prison, in Melbourne, and Farhad had just recently been released a month before, uh, and then we started to develop this idea of making a longer form film to share their stories and talk about the broader issues around Australia's policy. And one of the things that you do do in this film, which is really captivating, is actually put in the key uh, cruelties, but you also have this incredibly expressive element to their sense of uh, survival and personal journey and their creative spirits. It's so incredible uh, um, 
their voices and mm. the filmmaking doesn't get in the way. It's very fluid. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm glad you think that. I mean, I really uh, wanted to make sure that um, that I didn't get in the way of their stories and that they could tell them themselves. It's a very important part of pivotal aspect of the film. Um, they also are very inspirational, articulate people. Um, they're complementary personalities. They met on Manus through their kind of joint love of music and art uh, and have been very, very powerful activists uh, against the policy, you know, both while they were held for almost eight years and since they were released. And really, that you know, they, they can tell that story well. And I really wanted to humanise this issue because one of the big issues, one of the big problems, I guess, that the government so successfully managed to achieve in perpetuating this policy is to dehumanise all the individuals. All numbers. Yes, that's right. So... Um, yeah, the guys are happy with the film. Um, as an artist, I really didn't know how to make a film like this, which had advantages and disadvantages. I didn't really know what I couldn't do. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a, a labour of love, a devotional act um, over the past two and a half years since I began it. One of the things that's so uh, extraordinary is how awful their lives were in Menace and how, mm. um, I mean, it's all very well to talk about something like this, uh, and I know that from the point of view of the people who were fighting for them to be given recognition here in Melbourne uh, at the rallies and all the rest of it, uh, and it's been decades now, um, mm. the uh, actually getting a sense of how bad it was. It, it, this film actually tells us uh, that fighting is the only way. I mean, it was just so terrible. How dare they do this? Hmm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of people um, aren't really aware of the way this whole regime operated. I mean, on paper, you know, um, all the people that arrived here post-July 19, 2013 were sent offshore uh, to, to Manus or Nauru and were held in brutal conditions. But I think the really... Uh, the really important part of the way they were treated is kind of below the surface, very invisible. It's the way they uh, were humiliated on a daily basis. That's not something that you can easily convey. And I really wanted to do that because although a lot of people don't understand, uh, a lot of Australians obviously don't understand what it's like to seek asylum, to be forced to leave their country or to be held in detention. I think we all understand at some point in our life the idea of being humiliated and how painful it is. Mm. And if you expand that idea out to a whole system, a regime consciously designed by the federal government to humiliate individuals on a daily basis, probably it's the best way to try and get Australian people to understand a little bit about how that worked because it was a kind of top-to-bottom thing. Yeah. And um, I think that taking away the dignity of people and humiliating them deliberately uh, through a range of things on a daily basis that was really probably the cornerstone of the policy, why there was so much suffering. Yes, a lot of suffering. I mean, even down to uh, the description of being uh, hundreds of people being in, in close quarters for hours, yes. not being able to get, I mean, and uh, things like uh, spending hours and hours in the hot sun waiting to be fed. Yeah. Yeah, it's just um, an outrage. Who do they think they are? I, I, I say to myself, I'm going to have a section <laughs> on this program called Who Do They Think They Are? <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 
there's uh, these people making this film with these people with uh, Fahad and Mustafa. Uh, they are really extraordinary people, um, yes. but also they tell us how they survived. Like um, Fahad, you see it in his face, like his eyes. Mm. He's got such character and such sadness um, and gravitas. Uh, they talk about how art saved their lives. Yes. Well, you know, as an artist myself, I guess uh, the way art was so crucial to them was the mo- probably the most fascinating part for me about learning about their stories and telling it in the film. Um, people talk a lot about art being powerful, um, but to actually see how that worked in practice with these two guys was um, incredible, and I, I really wanted to make sure that I tried as much as I could to convey that in the film, and they used art in three ways. Uh, one of them was just to basically to survive, because art gave them a way to transport themselves outside their circumstances, their daily life. They could get lost in their own art. Um, The second thing they used art for was for peaceful resistance. So they wrote songs and made paintings and wrote poetry about the system, uh, about humanity, um, and that was their form of resistance because their, their struggle against the system was always peaceful. And the third thing that art did for them was... By creating art and sharing it, they were able to make a network of connections on the outside, and that was a crucial part of their support, personal support and support for their um, for their activism. So art was really, uh, at a base level, the most important part of their survival. Yeah, uh, it's hmm. extraordinary. Uh, the other thing that um, uh, people have to remember is we're not talking about a little time. We're talking eight years. We're talking years yeah. and years and years of people's lives. That's right. I mean, think for all of us, think about what's happened to in our lives in the last eight years and probably all the things that have happened, all the changes in our life, all the things that happened with our families and our friends. Um, for guys like Moz and Fahad and all the other people that were held, their lives were basically on hold. Uh, and they were dealing for eight years um, with uh, this system that actually pushed them down on a daily basis, made them sick, made them ill, gave them PTSD, uh, while, you know, for most people uh, who were free, we just had our normal lives with lots of uh, amazing things happening, lots of choices in our life. So eight years is a very, very long time, especially at their age. You know, they came when they were in their 20s, I think Farhad was 29. Uh, that's a very uh, important part of people's lives. And those that section was taken away from them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, the part of the film that uh, actually tells us about where they've come from is really fascinating too, I'll have to say, uh, being in constant war. Yes, well, Kurdish people, uh, you know, are born really into uh, a world where their culture is not really recognised. Um, there is no country of Kurdistan, even though there's millions and millions of Kurdish people. And I guess when the West was um, carving up uh, sovereign borders around the world, uh, Kurdistan didn't get a get in, get a country. And it, particularly for the Kurdish people that that live in the Iranian part of uh, Kurdistan. Um, their lives are horrendous. They can't speak their language. Uh, They can't write their language in school. They can't express their culture in any way. Um, 
So life for a Kurdish person in Iran is extremely difficult if they want to agitate, uh, you know, if they want to play ball and, and they decide it's easier to comply and be trodden down, well, I guess they can, they can survive. But for people that want to speak out and people that love their culture and Kurdish people, you know, love their indigenous culture, um, it's a very difficult place to live, which is, you know, the reason why these two particular guys, along with many others, were forced to, to flee. Yeah, well, uh, that's an interesting point that's made, that uh, the Australian government created a system that was so vile that they were um, inducing people to go back to that situation. That's correct, Danny. The whole, the whole uh, point of this uh, horrendous system was to make life so difficult, uh, even possibly more difficult than the place they'd fled from, um, both to encourage people to return home, which they could do any time, even if that meant going back to a place where their lives were in danger. And secondly, they, the government wanted to use uh, sacrifice the people that had sought asylum here as a deterrent to, to discourage other people from coming. Um, the whole system's completely um, uh, surreal and horrendous. Well, that was interesting too, the criminalisation. There was a sequence where um, uh, Moz is being patted down, continually patted yep. down. In fact, he said the statistics for the amount of times that he's been patted down. Mm. And the, um, the sheer... Um, uh, violation of that on a person, and the thinness. He's 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 read thin. These, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's such a compelling moment in that film, and it, uh, and what your film really does is actually put us in their position. Well, I'm glad if it does, because that's really a hard thing to do. It's very hard for you know Australians are a decent are decent people. But it's very difficult with this issue to try and uh, make people understand that it's important to, um, if you know, if we have rights, if we enjoy our freedoms, for anyone else that we're responsible for to um, to fight for their rights for the same. It's very, very difficult to convince Australians to see that. I mean, you, you know, we don't have to see it. Nobody's obliged to care about this. Um, but I tried to make the point that you know developing empathy for anyone we're responsible for in our societies is very important, makes our society stronger. And if the government's able to take one cohort and treat them like this, who's going to be the next yeah, cohort? That's right. I mean, one day it might come back to us. You just don't know. So we've got to stick together and act in solidarity to protect anyone whose rights are being violated uh, in our society, anyone. And that that is um, the no nature of this film. Uh, I mean, we've been through the brutality of it, and Fahad is a shining light in this. He he um, has a very sophisticated understanding of um, the situation, and he will. He, it, it was impossible for him to lay down tools. He had to. He had to fight. Uh, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary person, um, and Australia is lucky to have him, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Mm. Um, the uh, joy in this film, and it comes out in the title, which is, of course, "Freedom is Beautiful," mm. and it is just such a fantastic acclamation. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't want to make a film that 
focus too much on the politics or on the difficulties they face. But obviously, in order to provide some context, I needed to talk about it. But I really tried to limit that and talk more about the what where their resilience came from. And that really was an idea that they refused to give in to hatred and resentment uh, to people in the system, um, that they remain hopeful and they tried to exist in love. Uh, and I think that's why their messaging is so powerful, because they somehow were able to do that. I don't know how they did that. I mean, you know, they're incredible. Um, but I think that was the key to their survival, was that they were able to always remain hopeful and positive and to remain uh, loving uh, of people and understand that those who were working in the system were kind of like robots, which is how they saw them. Um, now, they're very compassionate, kind, uh, generous people. Yeah, they certainly are. Um, now, the film uh, has, is a great success. It's a, a part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, uh, and it uh, sold out. There. It was sold out for its um, screening for today, which is at uh, 7.10 at the Nova. But so they've had to make room for another screening tomorrow. Yes. Uh, on Yeah, that's right. We're on Saturday, Saturday tomorrow. <laughs> Sunday, the 30th. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's great. We've got another screening for people that missed out on tickets today. So it's tomorrow afternoon at um, 5.30. It's also at Cinema Nova. So there are still tickets available for that if anyone would like to come along. Um, the guys will be at both screenings. So if you come, you might get the opportunity to, to meet them tomorrow. Today there's a and a with uh, Moz and Farhad and myself and Craig Foster, who's been a kind of instrumental part of this whole story. A very close friend and ally of both the men since they were back on Manus many years ago. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the man who went, the man who uh, who had used his personal fame mm. for good. Exactly. Yeah, he's an incredible guy. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, it's a great thing to have people doing the right thing. Uh, never give the bad the, a free kick. Um, <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we've been talking to Angus MacDonald. Get along to Freedom is Beautiful at Nova tomorrow, 5.30. You can get a ticket online um, and we'll hear from Moz all the same. Australians, pay attention. It's most from Manus, who's a sock in the hell since four years without any reason. Listen to me for a minute, por favor. Just want you to be aware about what all the rats have done to me. Liberal label lying to you. I'm not terrorist, I'm not perilous But they have put my youth in the horrible case For cheating, money, running their bloody policy So want you to get your shit together And sort out this mess Or you always be known as Australia's next mess Help us keep our sanity Remember our humanity Sanity. 
pressure on them, they will abandon me in limbo. No worries when I hear sorry from you, but you know your silence brings them strength and happiness. Your government treats us like animals, while the UN say we're not criminals. Peter Dutton and Malcolm Turnbull hang your heads in shame. It's a crime you have committed in Australia's good day. So I want you to get your shit together and sort out this mess. Or you always be known as Australia's excess. Help us keep our sanity. Remember our humanity. I am, you are. We are all the same. Help us keep our sanity. from Fitzroy Primary and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. A week's solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when, oh, first, we've got to say it, bloody Nigeria. Can't it be satisfied that oil makes it one of the richest countries in the world, or at least satisfied that it makes shell out your wealth and the great fossil behemoths, the richest behemoths in the world, and also on shell out your wealth at Al's behalf, knows how to handle the odd million or several protesters who reckon none of the wealth goes to the people. All they end up with is poverty and the destruction of their environment. In some parts of the world, it's called lynching. In Nigeria, it's called the law. So how dare they? Worse, mostly blacks beating mostly whites. It's contrary to the natural order. Sorry, I just had to get that disaster off my white-as-white chest. But a week when, just as the caring business class with enthusiastic acclaim welcomed the appointment of Michelle Bulldust to govern the Reserve Losses Bank, indicating she will be a boon to workers and the poorest of the poor, this week they were far more reserved. No, no, that's putting it mildly shattered. The end of the world as we know it, after the socialist new appointment to chair the Productivity for Profits Commission, bloke called Chris Barrett, real name, a former ambassador in Paris to the OECD and senior economist in the Victorian Public Service. Good capitalist credentials, I hear you say. Well, yes, but no. See, he was also an advisor to former socialist big economic guru Wayne Swansong, a red flag to the poor caring business class because we all recall what a boon Wayne was for the poorest of the poor, how he so threatened the filthiest rich of the filthy rich who somehow survived his commie policies and became filthy richer. For the good of all of us, of course. This new appointment is so dangerous, so threatening to the good of all of us, that the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review on behalf of the filthiest rich of, of the caring business class, spent many pages declaring the appointment a disaster. 
one writer questioning whether he, the appointee, will have the courage to oppose socialist threats to caring employers. While the omniscient political editor, Philip the Capitalist Curry, alerted us, Chris Barrett comes to the job with fine credentials and glowing endorsements, but his objectivity will be the subject of scrutiny. A big, big but there, listener. Socialist connections, agitprop. While the voice of the caring business class editorialised under Productivity Post for Socialist Insider, praising his predecessor, who was appointed by former caring business class big economic guru Josh Fried of Icebergs, who, the predecessor, maintained the pro-market approach of the Productivity for Profits con mission. That predecessor, by the way, having worked for caring business class Polly Dick Minchin and former Victorian treasurer Alan Stockdill, whose legacy we all recall as we pay our huge power bills, among other things, but no problem there about objectivity, a sensible good for all of us appointment. Indeed, the editorial lauded the economic reform era of the 80s and 90s that revived true blue prosperity. The ACTU now calls this, in parenthesis, neoliberalism and wants to neuter the body that called out the union's successful push for a return to patent bargaining workplace laws as an anti-competitive drag on productivity. Phew, it's hard to believe, but those bloody evil unions seem to be getting more evil. And how dare they insult the economy with a disgusting pejorative like neoliberalism. So because we care about the sensitivities of the fragile caring business class and its media outlet, we will refrain from calling neoliberalism neoliberalism. We'll assuage their concerns by calling it, well, there's heaps of choices. New right economics, smash the workers' nomics, smash the evil unions' nomics, make the poorest of the poor poorer and poorer nomics, make the filthiest rich of the filthy rich filthy richer nomics, destroy public services' nomics, destroy planet Earth nomics. Ah, oh, the possibilities are endless and nowhere near as pejorative as the pejorative neoliberalism. And just to reassure them a little more, I think we'll find they have nothing to worry about, business as usual. As we know, when the proverbial hit the fan over PWC for pricks with confidentiality's little problems like being pricks with confidentiality, it announced it was establishing an internal review led by caring business class heavy Ziggy Switch Nuclearonsky, former Tell Stray from Public Interest Supremo. This week it announced Ziggy will report to PWC by mid-August an in-depth coverage of the big issues involved. Apart as Pricks with finally released the terms of reference, apart from the tax leak scandals and the firm's past conduct. Just when we thought the scandals and their conduct might have been a, a touch relevant to the inquiry. Uh, seeing this arose out of the scandals and your past conduct, shouldn't they be just a touch relevant? We asked company spokesperson Michael Sleazy III. Of course not. After all, we already know about all that. Why commission a report into what we already know? No, no, this report will take us into the future, into a profitable future. This shows we are looking forward to erecting barriers to ensure this can't happen again. Oh, good, so, so you've learned your lesson. 
Certainly, we will erect barriers to ensure we don't get sprung next time. Notice the report will go to you. Uh, will you make it public? Are you asking us to disregard the report's confidentiality? What would that do for our reputation? Uh, sorry, I hope so. Of those socialist threats to the caring business class, to the delicate flower that is the economy, dire warning from our very own big true blue Aussie BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter. As its supremo, Gerald Dine on Workers' Blood Slattery, told the US of the UN of the US of the World Chamber of Profits, the socialist crippling same work, same pay threat will cost poor bloody huge $3 billion and jeopardise great national benefits like its Olympic Dam copper, uh, plus a, a bit of uranium, giant development, would set back the transition from fossils, and we know how that would so upset bloody huge polluter, and risks exacerbating an unsustainable situation where labour costs would double while productivity plummeted, showing the depth to which the socialists have plummeted. But Gerald Dine on Workers, we asked Gerald Dine on Workers' Blood, you employ labour hire workers from your own labour hire company. Does this mean you're ripping them off to the tune of $3 billion? Of course not. What it does mean is that the very successful system of labour hire is threatened because you can't rip them off. Look, do you want a great national project to be abandoned? Do you oppose the transition from fossils? Oh, sorry, sorry. I hope so. Well, you might. It gets worse. The sundry chambers of profits have warned us socialist threats to make casual workers who are not casual workers not casual workers are dangerous, will cost productivity, flexibility, and jobs growth. Productivity, flexibility, sacrosanct to the caring business class so it can enjoy jobs growth. Although, on the other hand, Michelle Bulldust says we must have thousands and thousands more workers unemployed. They, they need to sort that one out. But the Chamber of Commerce and Industry profits warned it's all about evil unions, that casual workers are less likely to join a union, see a dangerous socialist plot. And Master Builders Profits Association Supremo Danita warn of disaster are sensibly, we aren't sure what problem the government is trying to solve. Because, she added, as it stands, we have no problem ripping off casual workers. As the filthiest rich or the filthy rich play happy families in a Perth courtroom that had to be adjusted to accommodate the elite of the legal profession, Gina Wronghart, her father's ex-partner, the Right the Prophets family, the Roads to Riches family, hammers the workers Lee Iron and Gina's happy, happy family, Bianca, John, Gloria and Hope, all suing each other, laying claim to the riches, with 12 silks, the most expensive, charging up to 35 grand a day, and a bevy of juniors and the big end of town solicitors rubbing their hands together. It's easy to see who won't be the losers as the happy, happy families battle it out in what's expected to last about four months. And keeping the lawyers happy, the ensuing battle over who'll pay the costs. It's legal heaven. A utopian description we wouldn't use to describe Happy Happy Families Christmas Day at Gina's. 
the US of Congress is conducting hearings it claims will confirm the existence of aliens. More than likely a sighting at Trample the Poor Towers many years ago from which emerged the greatest alien emerge ever, ever. Or even a sighting down under as a zombie figure emerged from the primeval swamp, like you know. And we know the Republican rump in Congress is questioning flogging those $38 million a day nuclear train killers to True Blue Aussie. But two establishment journos assured the Radio National brekkie person yesterday, it's just grandstanding. There's no problem. The deal will go through. And they all breathed a sigh of relief. And I thought, I'm sure all of us who heard it thought, for once, let's back the Republican rump. Numerous motions opposing the Forkers deal are lining up for the Socialist Party National Conference where we're told the, in parenthesis, left, has the numbers for the first time in eons and it shows the immeasurable value of getting those numbers. It has already agreed not to allow anti-Forkers motions succeed. Avoid embarrassing the government and its out-of-control left big supremo Anthony Albinuzzi. As one left MP assured us, we will have a democratic debate and ensure democracy doesn't prevail. Not sure he put it quite like that, but that's near enough. Mentioned former state big economic guru Alan Stockdill reminds us of the sensible equation as we're told wholesale energy prices have plummeted and the good old privatised energy companies were therefore forced to announce huge increases in the retail price proving the invaluable benefits of market forces. Finally, not unrelated, the juxtapositioning of the week award, Monday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1, kicker, owners say reckless Andrews will deepen crisis, main headline, investor fury over Vic Red Freeze plan. Oh, the poor landlords, poor investors. And P2, directly behind it, Rent pain takes gloss off slowing CPI. Bloody tenants with no respect for the poor landlords and poor investors. Keeping the bloody complaining tenants poor. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Kevin. That was Kevin Healy with the This Is The Week That Was. We're going to, before we get on to having a chat with uh, Don Sutherland, we're going to remember the passing of Sinead O'Connor. Margaret Thatcher on TV Shocked by the deaths that took place in Beijing It seems strange that she should be offended The same orders are given by her I've said this you said I was childish and you'll say it now Remember what I told you They hated me, they will hate you England's not the mythical 
Sinead O'Connor. Ah. Sad. Um, hello, Don. How are you? Well, good day, Andy. Hello to all of your listeners. And uh, like you, I've been uh, grieving uh, the, the passing of uh, Sinead O'Connor also. What a, uh, what a wonderful contribution she has made to thinking about so many different things. Yeah, what a mighty person. But we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about a whole lot of other things like profit and um, keeping the workers down. Yeah, well, I haven't been on for a while, Annie. But over that time, I've uh, I've been thinking a lot about how we as working class people uh, talk to each other about what's going on in the economy and the society. And that's partly because of you know the day-to-day observation of worsening sharpening downward pressure on the standard of living, while at the same time, climate change is not slowing down as it, sh- as it really should be. It's actually getting worse. It's gathering pace. And that means, as we see every day, the destruction of both human communities and their connected national natural environment. So all of these things are about the synergy between the economy and society as a whole. And, uh, there, is, there are ways we talk about it that are both promising and problematic, and uh, maybe we could trace through some of that. We get a good way of getting into it because I think, you know, just over the last few days, we have a, a good entree into it, uh, one of several, uh, with the National Secretary of the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union's um, speech to Press club a couple of days ago, yep. which he proposed a super profits tax to close what he called um, and what the union calls the, the housing gap. Um, I think this is a very important speech, and it's worth watching. It is still available on YouTube and also on the ABC's iView. And there's one thing I think there's many good features to it, although one that I think he makes, one comment that he makes at the front is just uh, not very well put. He says that there is no problem more pressing, more dire than the incapacity of the nation to house all of its people. And I think that's a very unfortunate way of putting it, because uh, although it is a dire problem, 
point of view of working various parts of the working class in particular, um, nothing is more dire than uh, the problem with climate change. And his way of putting it basically sets up a binary in opposition that it's we close the housing gap or it's climate climate change mitigation. Yeah, well, we, it's it's funny that you should say that because. Uh, there's all this uh, outrage that uh, there should be rules that uh, the latest houses being built in England shouldn't uh, co- should be um, climate neutral. Uh, it's fascinating that uh, the uh, the greed machine just refuses to accept that uh, climate is paramount. Well, the I think my my hunch is that uh, he personally and probably many others in the union who have been thinking about this. Uh, in the things that go inside inside the union, such a such a policy proposal is brought forward. They would they would be comfortable with an approach to new new uh, new dwellings being built in such a way that um, climate change mitigation is at the front of the design features and so on. I'm sure that would be the case. But the way in which he put it at the front end of that speech was, I think, uh, problematic. And I, you know, I think there's going to be plenty of opportunity to fix that because there are so many, there are a number of other very positive features, I think, around what the CFMEU is proposing. And it's a good example, and, and they are, it, it provides good insights into how we can talk about what's going on in the economy and in the environment and how they interact and so on. Did you, did you know that um, the Labor Party federally sent out a message on email? I received it, so I'm assuming everyone else, you know, a whole lot of other people did, uh, say, talking up their um, housing, the amount of money they've put into social housing and, you know, beating the drum in a positive way. And that was obviously timed to happen just before that speech. Yes, and, and and there was a slap, there were slapdowns afterwards, and in fact, uh, the Labor Party le- parliamentary leadership, uh, Albanese, Shorten, and Don, who I heard comment on it, were on again ticket with Angus Taylor from the Liberals in slapping down what Zach Smith was bringing forward on behalf of construction workers. Um, so it's worth having a closer look at it. Um, uh, the, there are several reasons why it's a good idea. They're proposing a, a tax on super, what they call super profits. Now, uh, the first thing is, therefore, we have a chance to get the focus upon profits, not wages. And we ought to grab every opportunity we can to do that because, generally speaking, especially, for example, in the discussion about interest rates, the powers that be are forcing the discussion into it's all about controlling wages. And that's why you have to raise the level of unemployment to make sure wages are kept under control. And then you go on and on and uh, you find that all of the employer organisations are telling lies, and, but nevertheless uniting around the lies to uh, to stop the extremely modest changes to the industrial relations laws uh, that might give workers slightly more power. So it's worth uh, just remembering that um, since over the last 10 years or so, uh, the three major measures of gross profits have gone skywards. There is no problem in terms of the volume of profit. Of course, the volume of profit year to year or quarter to quarter goes up and down, but the overall trend 
is very powerful, especially since um, after the Liberals came in in 2014. And then, and then the second thing about the proposal for a super profits tax, and we'll have a look at a couple of specifics about the proposal shortly, but is, is that it's virtually saying that those who are taking the profits can't be trusted to invest, reinvest them in a, a socially useful, productive way. Well, and never a word, true word spoke. Well, and the evidence is in. Because over that same time frame, where you have the skywards direction of the massive profit, gross profits, you have a decline in the share of productive investment from those profits. In other words, the proportion of those gross profits that is being spent productively, and within that, even at times, in a socially useful way, has collapsed. Yep. And downward trend, once again, there's been little blips where it sort of showed signs of a little recovery, but those, those periods are usually, well, first, the volume of the recovery is, is small, and secondly, they don't last very long. And that takes us to the next feature, I think, about what Zach Smith is bringing forward, and it's about the social wage. That is the synthesis of government taxation sources with socially useful spending. Now, there is some detail in the proposal that I'll come to that is problematic about that. But nevertheless, the overall focus on the social wage as being, as in, in its interaction with the industrial wage, um, is really important. And it's a the next thing is that it's the union is trying to challenge. I don't think it quite nails it, but it's trying to challenge the dominant economic thinking of the past 40 years. And we had Kevin this morning talking about how it might be labelled the common one as neoliberalism. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but he had all sorts of other versions, which is... That was uh, hilarious. I thought that was very funny, and I've been keeping a list of all the adjectives that you have been put in front of the word capitalism, and I might share those with your listeners on another day. Um, within that, however, Zach Smith is talking about a campaign. In other words, he is sensible enough, and those around him who have been working on this with him are sensible enough to know that reversing or uh, defeating the dominant economic thinking is a, is a, is a huge task uh, because neoliberal ways of managing the economy infect the way you and I talk about uh, what's going on in the world every day in our conversations day to day. Yeah, and that's right. A couple of retired... Uh, uh, retired women who were quite active in various ways in campaigns in their community. And we were sort of uh, reflecting on that and just in the way we were talking about uh, housing and pensioners and so on. Um, I think we've... Uh, so how we as workers see ourselves in the economy is also up for grabs if this campaign is developed. Why shouldn't? the participants, not just the leading voices, 
but the participants in various campaigns and initiatives for discussion about housing policy, uh, uh, climate change mitigation and so on, why shouldn't we start redefining what those campaigns ought to be all about? It doesn't just have to remain in the hands and in the control of the leaders who articulate things in the first instance. We do not have to continue being the objects of economic policy decisions. We can become the subject. This is a very big deal because, you know, we see an example of... Um, we see an example of the way in which the union movement deliberately, in some ways, persists in defining low-wage workers as the objects of the decisions they make when they make an intervention into the annual wage review. There is no union-designed collective agency for low-paid workers. And I would argue that that lack of insight about that, that lack of focus about that, uh, goes a long way to explaining why the union movement is not reversing union density. This, so the way we talk about the economy needs to be reshaped so that we intensify a struggle where we become the proactive collective agent of change rather than being victims of what's being done for us. Um, so the idea of a campaign that's been put forward by uh, Zach Smith is really good, but it can go a lot further than the parameters that his extremely well-delivered speech at the, the National Press Club when he launched the campaign. It can go a lot further even than he is talking about. And my hunch, the way he talked, is that he would not have a big problem with that. Yeah, well, uh, interesting that you should put it, discuss it like this because uh, I reckon a lot of people would consider that, you know, uh, the class system is arranged so that um, uh, the people in power, I mean, at the moment, what we've got is a liberal light deciding to throw out, make us Australia into the... Uh, uh, a, a version of America, really, you know, with all this uh, increased uh, manufacture of missiles and uh, all this sort of stuff so that we just become a, a, a part of America and all our economics is related to warfare rather than having a peaceful future. Uh, people will do feel at a loss, I should imagine. Yes. Well... The investment warmongering is uh, is another angle, and but it's conceptually we are talking about the same thing that that uh, yeah the big end of town are making these decisions that are very difficult to get out of. The important thing is that the capitalist class cannot, in any sense, be trusted to spend its profits, a portion, a significant proportion of its profits in a socially useful, productive way. That's right. They can't, they can't be trusted. And the warmongering is an example of that. 
and the continued investment in fossil fuel production is another example. And the what little investment there is in housing is purely for rapacious profit-taking. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah. they dress it up as being uh, the only way that it can be done. And that goes back to your your issue, which is that we need to change our language and our uh, connection to economy, right? That's what you're really saying. And, and, and the heroes, the, the current heroes of our movement are not leading on. We have, but that, but we should not be whinging about that. We should just face up to its reality and therefore take charge of changing that ourselves in terms of how we do our day-to-day discussions, how we talk about things in meetings that, that we go to. Uh, so uh, when we look more closely at the CFMEU proposal, we see uh, examples of doing that. So um, what is a super profit tax? Uh, for the CFMEU proposal, which they used, they used a mob called Oxford Economics to do the detailed work, yep. and it's really worth this report, by the way, and it's not a huge effort, um, and uh, but it, it's got some very rich material in it. So what they're saying is a, a permanent 40% tax on excess profits that allow for losses in previous years. And it would only apply to both mining and non-mining companies with turnover of more than $100 million. And that's about 0.3% of companies in Australia. <laughs> in other words, well, that's really interesting because what we're, the campaign, the campaign that will be uh, used against this uh, concept um, we na- will now know that 0.03% of the uh, business in Australia have inordinate amount of power, one assumes. Yeah, well, it's about only about 3,000 companies out of all of 0.3% of the total number of companies, according to this analysis, right? according to the Oxford Economics Report. Now, this makes, uh, in the scheme of things, Although the billions of dollars talked about, it's actually a very modest proposal. And as such, when you look at it carefully, it does not intrude at all into the core logic of exploitation and appropriation that has created the problem. (laughs) Mm. So it's a very important proposal, but it's got its limits. It's got its... And those limits, however, the potential to... What you're saying is it's not a revolution. In, in, in the way it's put forward, no, it's not a, it's not a revolution in its proposal. In its development, it may very well overturn and reverse and take on some characteristics of a revolutionary uh, process. And that's how we should try and understand it and work uh, with it uh, in a constructive way. In other words, if the campaign needs to go way beyond persuading the AOP National Conference to agree with it. <laughs> yep, yep, uh, yep. It's, a bigger, think, it's bigger than that. I think Zach Smith is open to that when he talks about a campaign that will take 
you know, a few years. I think that's a good... When he's talking like that, that he's launched something, there is now a process of development in which there is the, the stage is between now from launch date last week through the ALP National Conference. And the outcome there is going to define how things can be further developed in a far richer way than being limited to that sort of perspective. We'll have to finish, Don. We'll have to finish. We've come to the end of the time. Where it takes us to is therefore being understanding what the hell is going on with profits and exploitation. The rate of exploitation in the construction industry is not desperately bad relative to other industries, for example. Uh, But it could get worse because it does from time to time. Relative to, to manu- the rate of manufacturing uh, exploitation in manufacturing of manufacturing workers is extremely high, and interestingly, the most exploited workforce in Australia are workers in the mining industry. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But that's yeah. another issue altogether, which we can't. Yeah. We don't have enough time to talk about. Um, and we should we should come back to it and sort of egg this on a little bit if we can. And uh, I hope your listeners join in this process of. Uh, talking about these things so that we become the agents of change collectively. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Don. It's great. (laughs) Bye-bye. Cheers. Yeah, and that was Don Sutherland. And, uh, yeah, I'll go back and listen to that speech myself. Uh, That's the end of Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, We uh, spoke, uh, we talked to uh, Kim Stanton about the trust for... Uh, It's a film, two screenings at Nova, 30th of July tomorrow. Uh, It's uh, going, there's uh, also screenings of Freedom is Beautiful. That's uh, uh, the extraordinary journey of Kurdish refugee Farhad Bandesh and Mustafa Asif Mitaba. We spoke to Angus MacDonald, the filmmaker. There's a 5.30 screening tomorrow. At Nova, it's uh, it sold out, the um, one this today. Uh, we heard from uh, Kevin and we also heard from Don. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents and we'll go out with uh, Moju Wave. If it plays. No, it doesn't play. Won't play. Not any good. All right, we'll find something else. Um, this was really nice. I played it last week. Sing out.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.